Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, the podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for tuning in to The Sword and the Trowel today. Uh, do you know what, what episode? We're in the 40s now, right? 44. We're, we're quickly approaching. 44. I heard that from the gallery. We're quickly approaching. One of the, one of the people in the audience in the far back. Yes. We're doing this for a live audience. Um, we're almost a year old, man. We're getting close. That's exciting. Yeah, it feels That's like exciting stuff. Longer than that. We, um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you to fan members, Founders Alliance membership. Check that out at founders.org. We'd love for you to join us as we build and fight. Yeah. And also we've got a documentary that is coming out and we'd love for you to support that work. It's going to take some money to get this documentary completed and to make it available. We hope to every Southern Baptist pastor for free. So if you want to uh, help with that, go to the website. You can find information there on how to support us. Amen to that. Hey, so in the first segment here, we want to talk about congregational singing, singing in church, church singing. I sing in church. You sing in church. I do. I sing in church. Yeah. Um, Our church sings. We do. Because we see commands in the New Testament that we are to address one another uh, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with gratitude in our hearts to God. And um, congregations that gather all over the place have been singing, as Jesus has instructed us to, for 2,000 years now. Yeah. But um, it's something that we should think about how we do it, why we do it. So doesn't Would it be helpful if we lowered all the lights, made it dark, and uh, had the... Music from the platform coming really loud. Would that help us in our congregational singing? Um, some people do that. Would that help congregational singing? You're, you're a musical guy. I, I, um, I used to rock that low light. So why? That's why, in my past. why that's, I never did understand. What's the point of lowering the lights? I, not only did I rock that low light, I used to play that guitar. Well, there's nothing wrong with guitar, but, to, but tell me what's, what is, I don't get the lights. I get the guitar. I mean, I get all the instruments. I don't, I don't think there's an the instrument mood, made What's that? Just setting the mood. But what kind of mood are you setting with lowering the what, What's the difference? One in mood? where the Holy Spirit can work. <laughs> the Holy Spirit loves darkness rather than light. Said. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really, it's a serious question. Why dark rather than light? Yeah, I, mean, I don't it, know. No, no distractions. I mean, is it, there's what if it has something a, to do with, um, I'm just guessing. Yeah. I'm shooting in the dark. We here. used to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if it, uh, if it has something to do with feeling like, you know, it's me and the Lord. It's kind of, it, oh, okay. it's, it's more private, or private yeah. you know, it's kind of me and Jesus and yeah, it's with other people too, but it's, it's a, it's a personal thing. I have but a personal it, relationship with God. Wouldn't maybe. that then limit the congregational nature of it or diminish it somehow? I think so. or, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I, it's fascinating. I'm not necessarily throwing stones at folks who do that. I just have never heard a good reason for it. You don't like those loud speakers? I, I, you know, I want to be able to hear. And so that's why I don't always like it real loud. Because this is you're an old geezer. <laughs> what, what? You're just an old geezer. What? You're just an old see, geezer. Might, see what's happened. Uh, no, I, I do think if you're going to have congregational singing, then the congregational voice needs to be preeminent. And you can't have the congregational voice being preeminent if other things are preeminent. If you're going to have congregational singing, then you need the congregational voice to be preeminent, but you're actually claiming you believe this is biblical. So your belief, you, your claim is that to that the congregational voice needs to be preeminent because scripture says so. Yeah, because we're called to to sing congregationally. Now, again, I don't think the uh, I don't think the last instrument instrument has been made that 
can be utilized in the worship of God. So I'm not opposed to any particular instrument. We've had all kinds of instruments at different times mm-hmm. in helping to lead our worship. But what we have found is with the multiplication of instruments, the temptation arises for the instrumentation to take on priority rather than the congregation. And, and I do find this too, going from Old Testament to New Testament, because people go to the Old Testament, all the Psalms, uh-huh. and they find all this different instrimentation. And, and that's, that's the harp true. and the lyre, man. That's right. Also the sword, you know, but we don't typically use that in our uh, congregational worship gatherings, which, you know, we could, they don't play it, but they do swing it. Uh, but when you go from old to new, what you go from is complex to simple. And those complexities were all pointing to the multifaceted beauty of Christ. Mm-hmm. And in the New Testament, we have Christ. And so in our worship of Christ, there's a, a real emphasis on simplicity, I think, from what we sing, just what you just quoted, you know, Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, read the Bible, pray the Bible, preach the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, do what the Bible says in terms of the ordinance of the church and sing the Bible. Yeah. There's a lot of wonderful things that happen. Um, I remember hearing people when we um, planted a church out of here at a grace uh, many years ago, we had lights up and people would come and be like, boy, the lights are out. It's like, so kind of exposing when I'm yeah. singing, it was interesting people coming out of a, out of a dark kind of room and saying, boy, the lights are on in, when you step back, you go, boy, that's just so interesting. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you were driving at this point earlier, uh, that, and then just not having a lot of instruments, just viewing, singing as we come and we sing because God has told us to sing. And certainly we want to sing with excellence and in everything that we do, we want to do it with excellence, but it's just a matter of gathering up as you would, uh, a family for family worship. And we're going to sing aloud to the Lord because he's told us to sing aloud to the Lord. And I remember people being like, well, I'm afraid if I sing loud, the person like in front of me is going to hear my voice, you <laughs> know, point. Like, that's kind of the idea, <laughs> you know, just stand up there. Is there, is there something humbling about it? Yeah. It's humbling. You know, people are going to hear your voice and maybe you don't sing as lovely as the next person, but that doesn't matter because yeah. Jesus has told us to gather together here to address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What about psalms in that text? Yeah, psalms, the psalms. We you have a psalter. We have a psalm Paul's book. talking about the 150? Yeah, I think the psalms that are found in Scripture, there's some outside the book of psalms, but there's a whole book that's been dedicated to that. And in terms of, of singing so that others can hear you, I mean, we're, we're told to admonish one another in mm-hmm. this way. One of the things we've said uh, different times, I don't know that we've made a big emphasis of this, but I've done it in different classes I've taught. I think we've said it before the whole congregation too, is that it is right to look around and sing to one another whenever we're singing words of testimony or admonition. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're singing to the Lord and you're speaking to him in the text of the the song, then you, you shouldn't be, you know, looking to, I shouldn't look at you and say, oh, you know, I, I love you. And you are thank so you great. For your, yeah, that's right. You but, wait, wait, wait. You can tell you love me. It'd be love, like, brotherly love going on in the congregation. More than anything. I can't be like, I, I King, oh yeah. yeah. So, but it is right, you know, to, um, Oh, church arise uh, or any admonition like that. Mm -hmm. So to look around and I've done this the last few years and it's just been wonderful, you know, to look at people in the eye and particularly in some of those, um, those songs of comfort, you know, he will hold me fast and to look at people that I know, man, I mean, they're going through it right now. Mm -hmm. Their child's run away or, uh, you know, they've just suffered a, a severe reversal in their finances or, uh, bad diagnosis from the doctor, you know, and to look at them, and just, you know, he will hold me fast. Uh, that's a, th- those kinds of things are part of what God intends to happen in worship. Amen. Now, you know, when I grew up, we had every week, I'm, I think almost without exception, we had special music. 
And if you didn't have special music, then, you know, there's usually some kind of reason for it. And special music meant a solo or a trio or a quartet or, or some kind of a group or maybe a choir presentation where the congregation intentionally was not singing. Uh, did y'all do that? And was that still around when you were coming we up? Did. Okay, we did. So is that wrong? Every week. Is that wrong? Um, so you seem to be drifting into the conversation about the regulative principle and that there is a difference between um, something that is uh, principle and something that is kind of an accident or something that's kind of secondary tertiary to the issue. So, But doesn't it say in Corinthians, if anyone has a hymn, anyone has a song, let him sing? Stand up there and sing. So, so do you think I, it's sinful for somebody to do that? I don't think that I would be ready to say that somebody standing up and singing and the rest of the so congregation low. listening is sinful. So I don't <laughs> but, think I well, it's like a lot of qualification in that though. What? I mean, I'm, just so I'm do, answering your question. I don't, I don't think special music sinful. Do you, do you think it uh, is advisable? I probably wouldn't do it ever. No, I probably wouldn't do it. Why not? Uh, I would say, look, we're supposed to address one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I just probably have everybody do it. Mm. So to, what, what about might open up, open up doors that I just wouldn't want to open up again, not sinful. Just right. I wouldn't probably do so it. So what about um, like this Andrew Peterson song? You know, he, he is, is anyone worthy? Mm -hmm. He is. It's this antiphonal back and forth, which we do find in the Psalms. I think 136 thinks that. Uh, so is that, would you do that at one person singing? Sing antiphonally? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We, we do that. When? We do that in our songs. How? We just did it in like last Sunday. Some people in the song sing one part and the other part and sing the other part. No, no, that's not, that's not it. It's where you have a call and response. You want, sings, you want one individual singing, yeah. singing the first part. Yeah. You know, sure. I mean, if you want to steadfast that. love endures forever, you know, the, the refrain opposed to half the congregation singing one part and half the congregation right. singing the other part. Yeah. Where it's a, you know, you sing like, is anyone worthy? You know, he is, or, you know, that, that type of, have you heard that Andrew Peterson song? I I'm have. sure you think we could <laughs> sing that congregationally. Are, is your question, can one person sing one part and the rest of the congregation sing another In part? In response, one person sing I would have only. No, I would have no problem with that being okay. done. All right. So I'm just trying to find <laughs> out where your boundaries are. are. Where uh, your for boundaries? what? You're like, <laughs> ask your question. What's that, your question? That's my question. Can one person sing one part can of the song? Can we have a solo in a congregational worship setting? Not sinful. Not sinful. Wouldn't do it. Not Simple, you wouldn't do it. So I would say, yeah, it's not simple. There might be times where it'd be appropriate. You want to rock those special music? I'm saying it might be appropriate at times. Why I'm do not, you want to rock those special Because I music? look at the glass half full. You can what glass you, half empty. What do you like? You probably got a song in your heart right now, don't you, that you want to get up there and do. You want to do some Ray Bolts. Does I he do. still feel the nails every time I fail? Uh, no, he's alive. We, should, we want our listeners to know. That Tom is the broad accepting brother and Jared is the narrow with the regulative principles so tight. That's okay, but you're, you're, you're coming sing. along, you know, you're growing, and I appreciate that. Hey, we love congregational singing. Hope you do too. When we come back, we're going to be talking about a book. What book are we talking about? We are talking about a wonderful book by Charles Bridges, The Christian Ministry. All right. I want to invite you to the upcoming Southeast Regional Founders Conference in Cape Coral, Florida. It's scheduled for December the 5th through the 7th, and Grace Baptist Church will be hosting it again this year. The theme is going to be the law and the gospel, and Dr. Tom Nettles, Dr. Tom Hicks, and 
Dr. Jared Longshore, will be joining me as we try to set forth exegetically, theologically, pastorally, and practically this vitally important subject. In generations past, it was not uncommon to find within the Protestant Reformed heritage those who recognized the significance of this theme to the degree that they would say a man was not really prepared to be a pastor if he didn't understand the relationship between law and gospel, their distinctions, and the way that they support one another. One of the things that's forgotten in our day is that the God who gave us the gospel also gave us the law, and God loves his law as much as he loves his gospel. And Jesus Christ, who came and revealed to us salvation and has given us the gospel by his life, death, and resurrection, came and magnified the law. So mark your calendars and plan to join us in sunny southwest Florida in December, the 5th through the 7th, for this Southeastern Regional Founders Conference. Registration will be forthcoming, so check check us out at founders.org for more information. Welcome back to The Sword and the Trial, and uh, we want to talk about one of my favorite books regarding pastoral ministry. This is a book that's been a standard for me. I use it in courses that I teach on pastoral ministry. I referred back to it time and again. I remember going through it. It was not taught out of this book in seminary, but I read it during seminary kind of on my own with some other brothers. It's called The Christian Ministry by Charles Bridges. Bridges was a 19th century Church of England evangelical leader. And in this book, man, he just covers the waterfront for pastors. And I encourage every pastor to read the book. If you've not read it, you ought to get a copy, post haste, and do so. Published by Banner of Truth. Let me just read you the sections. He's got four or five parts to it. The first one's the general view of Christian ministry. He looks at how God instituted it and what the responsibilities of the ministry in the church are. And then he looks at general causes for the lack of success in Christian ministry. And he deals mm-hmm. with the preacher, the, uh, the pastor's heart. He deals with uh, circumstances that might be in the uh, church and in the culture. He deals with the work of Satan. So it's very wise in what he says about the strategies of the devil against the church, how the devil opposes the church. The third part is the causes for ministerial inefficiency connected with our own personal character. And so he just starts taking a scalpel here and uh, dealing with the, the different tendencies that can arise within our heart of covetousness, of pride, of this sense of deserving uh, things that God has not provided for you, mm-hmm. of what you're doing in your household and failures as a father or a husband uh, in your household. Uh, he goes on public works. And then the last section is pastoral work the pastoral work of the Christian ministry. So he's talking about personal work here. And I love this because he divides people into different categories. He says, here's how you need to deal with these types of people. Let me read you some of the categories. Here's how you deal with the infidel or the ignorant person or the careless person, the false professor, the self-righteous, the young Christian, the backslider. So the Christian ministry, I I love this book. I mean, you've read this book Mm -hmm. and uh, we hadn't worked through it together, I don't guess, but this would be a good thing for us to do with some men in the church. This is where you have Bridges talk about the necessity that a man grasps the law and the gospel. Oh yeah, And if you don't have that, then he says, perhaps you shouldn't even enter into the ministry. And that's foundational. We deal with that a lot. Again, we have a book that has just been recently published by Ernie Riesinger on the law and the gospel. But yeah. especially in our day, you know, people might people might look at the word in place and say, look, you know, Jesus shows us here that it's all about love, not law. Yeah. I say, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? Like yeah. this whole view, this 
neglect of the third use of the law. So the law, yes, it shows us uh, the character of God. Um, yes, it drives us to Christ. Yes, um, it uh, it restrains sin in the world. But Christians need not use it now as a guide for their Christian life. That this permeates so much of um, what we experience in churches today. Bridges will be a great help to rectify that situation. Let me read you a couple of things out of this on the law, preaching the law and the relationship with the law of the gospel. He says, this is on page 222, the mark of a minister approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, is that he rightly divides the word of truth. This implies a full and direct application of the gospel to the mass of his unconverted hearers, combined with a body of spiritual instruction to the several classes of Christians. His system will be marked by scriptural symmetry and comprehensiveness. It will embrace the whole revelation of God in its doctrinal instructions, mm -hmm. the experiential experimental privileges and practical results. The revelation is divided into two parts, the law and the gospel, essentially distinct from each other, though so intimately connected that they are an accurate knowledge or that an accurate knowledge of neither can be obtained without the other. The preaching of the law is therefore the main part of our subject. And he goes on to mm. define it. Then he quotes mm. Newton, where I think what you were referring to, John Newton said, clearly to understand the distinction, connection, and harmony between the law and the gospel and their mutual subserviency to illustrate and establish each other is a singular privilege and a happy means of preserving the soul from being entangled by errors on the right hand and the left. He goes on mm. to say that a man is not prepared to enter the gospel ministry that doesn't have that straight. If you take that whole book and you think about a man, perhaps young in ministry, hasn't engaged the book, generally, what, what's the, what's the main benefit you think he's going to get? Like, okay, here's how guys are ministering the word right now, but boy, if they read this book, this is what they're going to grasp. And it's crucial that they grasp. Yeah. I think one of the, the, maybe the main thing is that they will see that what God's called them to is so much more than they probably have considered because mm -hmm. he is comprehensive in dealing with the minister's own life. And uh, then thinking about what does success look like or prospering in the ministry look like? What are hindrances to that? How does the devil come up against that? How do you preach? What should you preach? How do you do personal work? I mean, all of this goes with this call to be a minister of Jesus Christ leading a local congregation. So I think the comprehensiveness of it which if we grasp that will certainly uh, drive us toward humility and a recognition. We're way out of our depth. We need what only God can supply through his word and his spirit. Very good. Hey, well, we highly recommend The Christian Ministry by Charles Bridges. When we come back, we're going to be considering the law of God, uh, particularly what it means to store up treasure in heaven. Amen. Founders Ministries held its first conference in 1983. Since that time, we've expanded the ministry to produce books and journals and have regional conferences and fraternals to have a study center. Uh, we've done multiple things here in the United States and around the world to seek the recovery of the gospel of God's grace and the reformation of local churches. Our desire has always been to facilitate healthy church living. We want to resource pastors and church leaders. We couldn't have done that without financial supporters through the years. We've never made a big deal about financial support. We've never made great appeals for financial support, but we do need 
financial resources to do the things that we are doing. We are grateful for those who stood with us, and we would be delighted to have you come and join us in this ongoing fight to see the gospel of Jesus Christ maintain its pride of place in Christian thinking and in our Christian churches. Uh, We've established this new way of giving called the Founders Alliance Membership. I invite you to become a part of the fam with us. There are different levels at which you can give to become a monthly supporter, or if you just like to make a one-time gift, we would welcome that as well. Uh, There's a big fight in front of us. We have a great concern that is arising among our churches and within the Southern Baptist Convention and beyond. And we would be delighted to have you stand with us, to unite with us, to join arms with us in this fight. Uh, Thanks for your support. Pray for us. If the Lord enables you to invest financially in this ministry, we would welcome that. Welcome back to The Sword and the Trial. We want to talk about one of the commands that we find in the Bible, particularly this one that comes out of the Sermon on the Mount, where in Matthew 6, 19, Jesus tells us that we are to store up treasure. Most of the time when people think about what Jesus says here, they focus on the negative because he starts out, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So there's a negative command. He tells us we're not to be hoarders. We're not to be people who uh, are not generous. This is not a prohibition to saving, being prudent, because we have Proverbs that tell us that a righteous man uh, stores up uh, an inheritance for his children's children and the ant who makes supplies for the winter during the summer when the sun is shining. And Jesus teaches that as well. But that negative then is supplanted by the positive. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So isn't it interesting that Jesus says, hey, I want you to build up a storehouse of treasure. Mm. He tells us that we're responsible to do that. So how do we do that? What does it mean to lay up treasure in heaven? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like what Randy Alcorn says in his little book, The Treasure Principle. He says, you know, you, you can't take your wealth with you, but you can send it ahead. So you can invest in those things that are of eternal significance. And I've seen this done in some of my personal relationships. Uh, we read about it historically where people like uh, Letourneau, you know, lived on 10% of what he made and gave away 90%. Uh, you just These great stories of people whom God gave incredible ability to and industry to carry out uh, wonderful things that became lucrative, and they used that to invest in the kingdom of God. And I mm-hmm. love to see that when, when businessmen do that today. Again, I've known a few who started businesses and they said, you know, we're going to take uh, 40% of our business, our profits. We're going to take 50% of our profits and dedicate it to the Lord's work. And so what they're doing when, when they did that is they set the table then for God to prosper their business, knowing that every time their business advanced, the kingdom of God was going to advance mm-hmm. as well through a, a wise investment. One of the challenges I think we face is is this while there, while there is certainly um, a division between the spiritual and the physical it's one thing to talk about spiritual things another thing to talk about physical things it's not it's not really the division that we often think of so i think there's an there's an inappropriate way that we're dividing up the spiritual and the physical people are thinking well i'm supposed to store up treasure in heaven i'm not supposed to store up treasure here on earth well what that means is well the one man he can go about his business you know he can go about going to get his education and getting his apprenticeship and then going up and you know building some some really lucrative useful business but you know hey i mean moth and rust is going to destroy the whole thing i'm going to go to my prayer closet that's what i'm going to do and then you know when i'm done i'm going to I'm going to read my Bible 
And then I'm going to go back to my prayer closet again. And I'm going to fast again. Right. And what, what that man, if that's all that he does, what he's really doing is he's avoiding the work. Yeah, he's, right. he's, he's avoiding, he's avoiding storing up treasure in heaven. He's actually not storing up treasure in heaven because he's not doing the work in this world that God has called him to do with a view toward heaven, with a view toward um, sacrificial investment in the kingdom of God. And so, I see that um, kind of that temptation in people sometimes where it's like, no, you're not really, you know, right. you're supposed to go put your hand to the plow. You're supposed to go work and, and build something and use it for the glory of Christ, for the good of his people, for the kingdom of Jesus. Yeah. I think that dichotomy wrongly understood has been detrimental on multiple levels. And that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. Uh, on the other side where guys have gotten this, I've got a friend right now who's been developing a business for years and years and years, and he he's close. He thinks they're going to be close to, to making the, this everything come together. And if so, then it'll be financially lucrative for him. But he says, man says, you know, this is for the kingdom. I'm doing this for the kingdom. God gifts everybody. If, if you're a Christian, you've been gifted by God. I mean, even if you're not a Christian, God's given you abilities. You're alive. You're in his image. So you have uh, all kinds of opportunities and abilities. But Christians particularly ought to think this way. And you ought to think, okay, what has God enabled me to see and think and do? And how can I exercise dominion over creation for his glory? Mm-hmm. It's not all financial, but financial is part of it. And Jesus says, lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. So whenever you work hard, if you're a shoemaker and you make a good shoe and you sell it at a fair price and you take the profit and use it responsibly, including investing in eternal um, ventures for the kingdom of God, that's right and good. And we benefit from that. Mm-hmm. I, we, we tell our church, you know, we, we moved locations here seven, eight, nine years ago, I guess. And we were able to do so debt free. Well, we were able to do so debt-free because people for years before had invested in that. And so people who come and worship sitting in nice chairs, air-conditioned building, they are the recipients of folks who have invested in the eternal work of God through Grace Mm -hmm. Baptist Church, providing us even something as uh, simple as facilities that we can meet in and teach in and worship in. Amen. Well... God's commands are good. They are not burdensome for us. Uh, We seek to obey them in faith. So thanks for listening to The Sword and the Trowel. And hey, go out and store up treasure in heaven. And invest. Invest in eternity. Do it for the kingdom of the Lord. go look at the documentary on the website. Check it out and see how you might be led of God to help support the distribution of it. I can't wait to see this thing. It's going to be be good. good. It's going to be really good.